Are y'all ready? Well, we're here, whether we're ready or not, glory to God. So I'll stand to our feet if we can. Open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to begin, uh, we're going to actually read, right now we'll read verses 4 through 7, but we're going to deal with verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 29, when you got it, say so. It says this, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may increase there and not diminish. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your great, great love. Thank you for your great mercy. And may your spirit that is present here now speak to our hearts. God, may you open our ears and may your kingdom Come and may you be manifested in great, great ways, Lord God, in our time together today. I pray against every distraction, every plan of the wicked one to hinder us from hearing from you. Lord, as we talk about these difficult topics that can be very divisive and distracting, Lord, let our minds be fixed on you and let us find a new and fresh hope in you and even a path forward to bring glory and honor as your sons and as your daughters who have been commissioned by you to be salt and light in this earth. God, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you are here this morning, you don't have an outline, just raise your hand and the ushers will be sure to get you an outline. Um, I want to be sure that you are able to take some notes. Um, I want to be sure that you're able to um, reflect on what we're going to talk about here. And um, I always challenge you this this way, and I will do the same thing that I always do, which is to encourage you um, to be sure that you are making disciples and that you sit down with someone and that you share with them the truth that you're learning. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about something, and I want to say first and foremost, um, thank you so much, because I know some of you were tempted not to come, right? Some of you were like, you know, we don't talk about religion, but we're in church, so we can do that. We definitely don't talk about politics, so we shouldn't talk about politics in church. And so if you look at your handout there, it's pretty clear, right? Politically correct is what I'm going to talk about. You see the blue and the red. Um, my subtitle, some of you don't like it, but it's okay. Um, is the right always right? Is the left ever right? Hello, somebody. <sighs> Because the thing is that everybody thinks that the right is always right. Like it's all, and, 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 and in one sense it is. Like when your GPS says go right, that means right. It's this right, right? Like that's it. When it comes to politics, not so much. Are you here? And, 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 and then there's some in the, in the church world, some in our culture who would say that the left is never right. And, the, and again, with the GPS analogy, left is, you know, left and it's not right. However, when it comes to political stuff, there's sometimes that the left is correct. Are you here? 
And, and I, want you to, I want you to lower your guard for a moment because I know some of you, you know, we have, we've gone through this study, um, and it, it is called Love and Respect, and it speaks about men and women in marriage. And for any of you that have gone through this um, study with us, you know that Dr. Emerson, what he, what he talks about is the pink and blue, right? That women hear through the pink, you know, you know, earpiece, and they view things through a pink lens, and men through the blue. And so sometimes, you know, and you that are married, you're like, yes, we have some clashing. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. I didn't mean that. That's what I thought, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And we do the same thing politically, right? Like we have our blue and our red and, you know, we right away, I'm this or I'm that. And here's what I want you to know. We're all believers. That wasn't strong enough. We're all believers. There we go. That's better. First and foremost, we are followers of Jesus. We are those, and I'll use this as a moment to just clarify. Um, we had a little typo in our slides there that said that we're running from, I don't know, from, from, from death, from life to death or something. And anyway, the thing is this, right? We are running, right, from death to life in Christ. That's what we do, right? And we as followers are supposed to bring that to bear in the culture that we live. We are supposed to bring the life of the gospel in every area of the culture that we are part of. And so if you look at your outline here, I asked you guys to do a little survey, but there is no question, there is no question, we are a nation divided, not united. And this is most clear in the area of politics. And so I sent you guys a little questionnaire there, a survey. I appreciate you guys who actually did it. We had 45 people who um, took this survey in our church. So that's, uh, you know, a little bit under half of the adults in our church. And so out of, the, out of that group here, here's what we came, 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 came to understand. That 37.78% of us are Democrats, registered Democrats. Um, 44.44% are Republicans. And then we have 17.78% that are independents. So that would mean what? That we are pretty diverse. We're not going to say divided, right? We're diverse in, in, in our views politically and where we sit and where we land, right, on social issues and things like that, on what we believe or what, maybe just the way that we were raised, right? Like I've heard that conversation. I've had that conversation with some of you. You know, that's the way that I was raised. I, I was born, you know, this, I'm going to die this. Okay, that, well, hey, that's fine, whatever. That, that, that's your call. That's between you and the Lord. But here's the thing that I want you to realize. I think that we, whether you believe it or not, I think that our church actually is, is a reflection of our culture. I think our church really reflects what our culture looks like. There is a lot of diversity. The only thing is that it falls into the place of being, div uh, being divided. And so then we'll ask you guys, who'd you vote for? And so 55.56% of you voted for Trump, 33.33% um, of you voted for Clinton, and 11.11% of you didn't vote. Let me clap my hands for those who didn't vote. Hallelujah. You are the only one in the room who has a moral high ground to tell anybody anything. Hello. Because you didn't vote for a sinner, you voted for no one. You said, I couldn't do it, whatever the reason was. And so you can tell, you know, me off, you can tell whoever else off. But other than that, we should all just humble our hearts before God, should we not? And we should acknowledge that, listen, when we deal with this, in the video that we just played, you guys remember, if you remember back in 2016, the day after, or, or the Sunday after the election, I played that video because I wanted to bring some clarity, bring some direction. And so here's what we realized, sadly, and this is the thing here in your outline, the church has allowed the culture to to divide us further, making us feel like we have to choose a color in this area. Can I say something? In Christianity, politics is like you're a blood or a crip. Hello, somebody. 
Like, 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 literally, like, like, legitimately. It's like, yo, I'm blue, man. You know what I'm saying? And like, we're, we're going to throw down for this. Or, yo, I'm red. I'm like, hold on a second. We're Christians, y'all. Like, why are we fighting like that? Why are we treating each other this way? Why are we not loving each other the way that we ought to? And we allow, we allow this. We allow them, you know, the culture to dictate what we're going to be or whatever. And we need to really sit back and think, wait a second. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, are we not? We are supposed to bring, listen, even when we disagree, even when there's disagreement, there's supposed to be grace. Even when there's disagreement, there's supposed to be love. Listen, I may vehemently disagree with you, right, about your position. Listen, I may think, check this out, I may think that you are a heretic because of what you teach, what you preach, what you believe. That does not give me a right to treat you unlovingly. Are y'all gonna hear me? That doesn't give me a right to treat you in a disrespectful way. What I need to do is denounce what you're teaching. What I need to do is denounce what you are standing for and be clear about that. But I don't have to be a jerk about that. I can be clear about that. I can clearly say we disagree. Nonetheless, you're still an image bearer of God. I still have to respect you. I still have to show love. I still have to pray if, if I believe that you're totally lost and I need to be praying for what? Your salvation, your deliverance, that God will do something in your life. But here's the thing, church, for too long, and the reason why I've decided to jump into this, I, sa I said it this morning, I posted on Facebook. Some of you may have seen I checked in, and I was like, you know what, man, even in the lion's den, I'm preaching on politics today. Hello. Even in the lion's den, right, this place that is uncomfortable. Because some of y'all don't even know where I'm coming from yet. You're like, let's see, Bishop, where are you going? Where are you going? Right? And, and, here, and here's the thing. What, what we have done for too long is we have allowed the culture to name us, to frame us, and to pin us against one another. And the question is this, who's right? Who's right? We've allowed the culture to do a lot of stuff, church, and what we have to do is we have to be bold. I was sharing with the leaders yesterday, no matter what your position is, no matter what, what color you say that you fall under, here's what I would hope. What I would hope is that you would be bold enough to have conversations with those who fall under the same color that you do and let them know when they are biblically incorrect. Because I can tell you something, me right here, I can tell you about conversations that I've had with those who would fall under the same color that I may fall under on a political scale. And guess what? I have sat there and when they have said things that I disagree with scripturally, they've made certain comments. I've been very crystal clear and said, no, man, you're absolutely wrong. Your thought process there is absolutely incorrect. And that does not align with scripture. Your belief is not that way. And I would hope that you would do the same thing. Because what I find is this, and I can say this because I've had plenty of conversations with different people, not just in this church, outside of this church. I make it my business to be around people that are diverse than me. I make it my business to even friend people on social media that think differently than me. And what I have found is this, is that we are real quick to condemn the other color, hmm. but not so quick to condemn those that were within the same color here. We have issues with that, so we need to think about this. Here's what I want you to think about this morning. Our allegiance must be to Christ, his kingdom, and the good of the nation. Our allegiance as Christians must be to Christ, his kingdom, and the good of the nation. Above everything else, church, above everything else, whether you're here, whether you're listening to us online, here's the thing. Our allegiance must be to Christ, must be to his kingdom, and it must be for the good of our culture. That is the reason why God has put us here. And so the first thing, which is what the title of this, of this message is, I want you to say this with me. Say, should the church... Engage in politics. 
Should the church engage in politics? And the reason why this is so important is because there is different arguments about this. There are different positions on this. And I want to give you a biblical reasoning why I would even talk about something like this. It is because I believe the scriptures are filled with examples of God's people being involved with the governance of nations, but which would be politics. If you look at the book of Genesis, you find what? You see one of the clearest examples in being Joseph. If you remember Joseph, he was one who was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. And then after he was sold into slavery, he was then in prison for a lie. And then from the prison, God elevated him to being the right-hand man to Pharaoh. That is a governing position in the nation. And it wasn't even his nation. I want you to understand this. This was a heathen nation that he was in. This was a nation that didn't believe in his gods, that didn't worship his gods. And yet God elevated him there to give him a voice. Listen. Well, can I say this? What we need is more believers who would really get serious about impacting culture, even from that role, and who would decide, you know what? I want to be run that's going to run for office so I can do what? So I can bring light to shine in the midst of a dark world. That's what we need. We need believers who would rise up. We need believers who would stand firm. Nonetheless, we see this in Joseph. And, and here's what I want you to realize. In a natural sense, not in a spiritual sense, if Joseph would have not been up in that position, the bloodline of the Messiah, again, in the natural sense, would have been in jeopardy. Why? Because we know that God sent Joseph before his brothers to preserve, to prepare a place for what? For his brothers to be able to come and find shelter in Egypt. For his brothers to be able to come. His family to be able to come and do what? And flourish in Egypt over 400 years. So God could raise up this nation. And so God does that. He uses them. Give you some more examples here really quickly. I won't go through all of them. But in the Old Testament, we see prophets who were doing what? They were appointing. They were anointing. They were advising. They were confronting. They were encounter encouraging. And they were rebuking kings. That sounds pretty political to me, does it not? They were involved in the governance of nations. Specifically, when you see those things, it's typically in the nation of Israel. You have a couple of other um, scenarios like in Jonah where it's not, it's outside of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus does what? He refers to Caesar. We see that John the baptizer, he calls rulers to repentance. And then I think the biggest thing in the last week that we deal with this, we'll go through some of these, some of these scriptures. The apostle Paul and Peter, they both instruct the church on how to deal with kings and all of those who are in authority. So why do I say all this? Because I want to give you a biblical reason why we're even talking about politics in any way, shape, or form. Why we're even dealing with such a divisive topic in the church. I'll give you one place that's really specific. I love this one. 1 Kings chapter 12, if you're taking notes. It's a story of Rehoboam, which is the son of Solomon. And Solomon's son comes on the scene. And here's what I want you to see there because it's so amazing to see this unfold. What we see in the beginning of this chapter is the people make Rehoboam king. That sounds, that's like pre-voting times, but nonetheless, they were affirming him. They were saying he is going to be the one that is going to be our king. And then we go on, and what do we see? We see that he, um, the, we see people petitioning the king. What happens? Rehoboam is made king, and then Jeroboam comes unto him and says, hey, I want to ask you some questions. He's petitioning the king. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like lobbyists. Hello, somebody. <laughs> he was asking the king for some favor. He was asking the king to do something for the people of Israel. And then we see what? We move on in the story, and we see that Rehoboam gets counsel from the elders of Israel. And then he goes from getting counsel from the elders of Israel to getting counsel from the young bucks. Hello, somebody. 
Be careful when you get counsel from the young bucks because sometimes they don't know what they're talking about. Sometimes they're a little radical. Sometimes they have a mindset that's going to lead you in the wrong direction. Nonetheless, what do we see? We see like his cabinet. Hello, he was choosing his cabinet, glory to God. That's what he was doing. He was deciding which counselors am I going to listen to. And then what do we see? We see him make a bad decision. He makes a bad decision. He decides to go with the wrong counsel, which did what? Ended up being the dividing of the kingdom of Israel. But if you go back to chapter 11, you know what you find there? You find there in chapter 11 that Jeroboam had already gotten a word from the Lord that God was going to divide the kingdom. And what we find in chapter 12 is that even in this bad decision making, even in all of this stuff that you and I are like, no, 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 don't go that route. The Bible says what? God was in it. Did you hear what I just said? God was in it. Even in the decisions, in, in the things that we don't like, listen, no matter what, there have been moments, I guarantee you, you know, for us in this room, I mean, the, the statistics show us this, there have been moments that you didn't like decisions that were made. You didn't like people that were in position. You didn't like those things, but guess what? God is in it. God is in it. We have to trust this, right? We have to believe this. So the question is, should the church be involved? I would say yes. Last one that I'll give you an example, one of my favorite books in the Bible. The book of Daniel is all about political engagement, is it not? The, the, the book of Daniel is about the children of Israel. And again, looking at Jeremiah, we see the connection here. But it's all about the children of Israel when they were sold into slavery, into Babylon. Right? Not sold into slavery, but they were conquered into this slavery in Babylon. They're brought into this place. And the scripture shows us, you remember back in Youth Sunday, where we talked about how, how, these, how these young men were brought in and they were made the wise men. They were developed for what? So that way they could be advisors to the king, again, in a heathen nation. The difference is that we have not been conquered. We were born here or naturalized or something like that. And so we are here in this nation that is, and listen, some of y'all are not going to agree with me on this, but this is not, listen, this is not a Christian nation. This is not. Think about what, what, what our forefathers were running from when they founded this nation. Were they trying to create another religion? Was that what they were trying to do? Think about it. They were trying to run from tyranny is what they were trying to do. However, while I would say this isn't a Christian nation, what I will say, and some people don't want to agree with this, is this nation was built upon biblical principles. This nation was founded upon biblical principles, and we want to, want to divert ourselves. We want to get away from the founding of this nation, where people were praying about the founding of this nation, where people understood that the only reason why we are a nation, the only reason why we are who we are is because of the sovereign God who has sustained us, who has maintained us, who has allowed us to have life. So listen, we may not be a Christian nation, but we were founded upon biblical principles and so we have to embrace this truth and so what I believe is this is that just like the children of Israel who were in Babylon we are the same in the sense that this is not our homeland are you here we are pilgrims church we are sojourners sojourners the Bible says we are passers-by we are on our way to a promised land hello somebody we are on our, we're not living for this life we're not living for this world we are living for the kingdom to come and we are called to do what as Jesus taught us to pray Lord your kingdom come in this earth your will be done in this earth that's what we are supposed to be about the kingdom of God being extended and living for his glory and so here's what I realized church is that we have a significant role within our culture. What does the Bible say? The Bible says something really important. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what Jesus tells us about ourselves through his disciples. And so what do we realize? Salt, I just want to talk about this quickly because we all know what light does. Light illuminates, does it not? 
Light shines in the darkness. Light comes in. It expels darkness. It exposes things that you would not see if the light was not on. And so we are called to be a light in the midst of a dark world. The light of Christ shines through us, but we are called to be the salt of this earth. Three things, you can write this down if you're taking notes. You know this, salt was something, it's something we all know, right? Especially, you know, every, everybody. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched any of those cooking shows, right? But one of the critiques that almost every single time that, that you hear is what? You didn't use any salt in this. Why? Because salt does something to the flavor, right? Salt does something to enhance what is there. Can I tell you something, church? We are supposed to enhance our culture. Hello? There's another side, the medicinal side of salt, right? The side that has healing parts in it. And so we are supposed to bring healing into this land. That's what we are supposed to be of. We're supposed to bring healing. How do we bring healing? We bring healing by the power of the gospel. That's what we do. We bring healing, but we're also this preservative. That's what we're supposed to be. And sometimes, listen now, sometimes that is what our focus is on us being preservants in the midst of a culture. And listen, you, you lie to yourself if you believe that this culture is not anti-God. If you believe that this culture is not turning away from God, if you believe this culture is not turning away from God in morality, if you, if you believe that, then listen, you're being blinded. You are not seeing the truth of what is going on out there. You're denying the truth. And so we have to be those who are preservants in our culture. The second thing, say this with me, understand the church's role in the culture. And so we're talking about politics, so understand the church's role in the culture. The book of Jeremiah, the scriptures that were in here, and I'll run through this rather quickly. But Jeremiah was written a little bit before the book of Daniel. Daniel was actually reading this portion of Jeremiah when he was in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, reading it because they had been in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah writes this as, as a way to do what? He wrote this to confront the false prophets. Keep that in mind. Jeremiah writes this to confront the false prophets who had been speaking to the children of Israel and trying to comfort them with a false comfort. Jeremiah speaks to them and he writes them to liberate them from hopelessness, to liberate them from false hope, to comfort them with true hope, and to give them instructions on how to live during their time in Babylon. I'll say it again. He writes to liberate them from hopelessness, uh, from hopelessness and from false hope. He writes to comfort them with true hope and to give them instructions on how to live while they are in Babylon. And so here's what I think when I read the scripture and as I prayed through this, I was the, this is the scripture that stood out to me as far as what it is that you and I are supposed to be while we're here in this earth, as we're passers by, as we're sojourners, do we see instruction? And so we look at the way that God had Israel in this place of captivity. And the, thing, the three things that I will say this is this is how Israel was supposed to be while they were in Babylon. Number one, they were supposed to be hopeful. Number two, they were supposed to be fruitful. And number three, they were supposed to be faithful. So the first thing that they were supposed to be is they were supposed to be hopeful. I want you to look at verse four really quickly. Verse four says this. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, now listen to this, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. He tells them, I am the one who caused you to be carried away. And so the first thing is we know this. God is in control. Are you here? 
The reason why we are hopeful is not because everything looks good. Let me tell you something. Israel in this moment was, was, was more upset than they had probably ever been, right? We went through this and we talked about Daniel and, and, and these guys walking in and the procession. We showed that video of what Babylon looked like, right? And I, I mean, this was devastating to them, demoralizing. It was meant to, to overwhelm them with grief and make them forget about their gods. They were in a bad place and yet God hadn't forgotten about them. They were being judged because of their sin. Say their sin. They were being judged because of their sin. You know what the problem with some of us is? We don't think God judges us because of our sin. Much less do we think that God is going to judge our nation because of sin. Are you here? We don't think that. We think, oh, no, it's just individual. Listen, that is an Americanized mentality. Go to the book of Revelation and see how God deals with nations. Hello. Look at how God, God still deals with nations. That's why he places us here. He plants us here so we can be a light that shines in the midst of a dark world, so we can be a salt that shines in the midst of this dark world. And so the first thing is we have to be fruitful. God is in control even in our worst moments resulting from our sin. I don't want you to get away from that. Israel was being judged because of their sin. God's mercy is experienced even in his judgment. Even in his judgment, you still see his mercy. Because he could have totally annihilated Israel. He could have totally said, you know what, I'm done with you guys. You guys are idols. Again, you go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, and you look at why God told Jeroboam, I'm going to tear the kingdom apart. I'm going to save two parts of the kingdom for my servant David. But it was because of their idolatry. Church, we live in a culture filled with idols. And let me say this boldly. Some of our greatest idols are our, are our political affiliations. Some of our greatest idols are our political positions. And listen, that's regardless of red, white, blue, whatever it is. Those times, sometimes those things are the idols that are in our hearts. The second thing that we, I mean, that we have to realize about this being hopeful is that it is only when we trust in God's sovereignty that our hope will be restored and be full. See, when I played that video after the 2016 election, it was to encourage those in the church that their hearts were sorrowful, that their hearts were broken, that their hearts were overwhelmed. I want the church to understand, listen, it does not matter who occupies the Oval Office, God remains on his throne. God is not shocked by anything. He's not, he's not, he's not like, oh my goodness. No, 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 that's you and me. Hello. That's us. We're like, how could? God is like, yeah, I know how could. How could? Go back to Genesis. How could? How could Eve eat the fruit? How could Adam not protect her? How could Adam eat the fruit as well? How could? It's, sin, it's the sin of man. We are sinful. That's how come things happen. But here's the thing. We have to be hopeful. We have to trust in God's sovereignty. The second thing is we have to be fruitful. Look at verses 5 through 9. Look at what he writes to them in his comfort. He tells them, build houses. Why does he tell them to build houses? He tells them to build houses because they're going to be there for a little while. He didn't tell them to rent a house, right? He didn't say, hey, man, go do a tent somewhere because y'all about to be delivered right quick. No, no, no. He says build houses. Take some time. Plant some roots. Be there, right? Be, be, be a person who's committed to the culture where you're at. Be a person who's committed to that place. He, he, he tells them to, to, to build houses, and he goes on and tells them to do what? Plant gardens and eat their fruit. So be there. Don't be afraid of the land. Be there where you're at. Listen, still, still remain your worship to me, but be there. Second thing is take wives and beget sons and daughters don't be depressed take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters why that you may be increased there and not diminished can i tell you something church 
on a spiritual side of this, on the practical side of this, we can see pretty clearly what that is, right? He's saying, listen, build houses. Be there. Be fruitful in the land where you're at. Be a person who is there, who's being productive in the community, right? That's what he's saying. That's what the church's role and responsibility is while we're here in this culture. But he also, I, I want you to realize this, is that our greatest contribution to the culture from our families to our coworkers to our neighbors to whoever else is that we make disciples. Are you here? God doesn't want us to diminish as believers. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to multiply. The second thing that we see here, look at verse, verse 8, I mean verse 7. He says, and seek, say seek. And seek the peace of the city. In one translation it says to pursue or to seek the welfare of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. Can I ask you a question? How much do you really pray to the Lord for this nation? Like legitimately, like how much do you really pray to the Lord for peace in this nation? How much do you really cry out? How broken are you before God crying out to him for justice, for righteousness, for his glory and for his power to be manifested in this nation? Church, that's what we're called to do. You know that, right? We are called not, but listen, I want you to hear this though. He didn't say just pray for peace. The first thing he said was seek peace. In other words, pursue peace. In other words, be a person who is about the welfare of the nation in which you live. So be fruitful practically, right? Be productive in the culture. The second part is be fruitful spiritually. Understand this. Our greatest contribution to the culture, hear this now, must come from our relationship with God. Our greatest contribution to the culture must come from our relationship with God. We are to seek what? We are supposed to seek this shalom, right? Y'all that have been through rooted, right? Shalom, this peace of God. This peace, we're supposed to be people who walk in peace. We're supposed to be seeking the peace of the nation in which we live. What does peace mean really quickly? It means completeness. It means soundness. It means welfare. It means peace. It means prosperity. It means tranquility. It means contentment. These are all words that signify what peace is supposed to be, and that's what you and I are supposed to be pursuing in the nation in which we live. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, And thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, listen to this now, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you, can, which you cause to be dreamed. Wait a second. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So when we're talking about being fruitful, we're talking about being fruitful practically. We're talking about being fruitful spiritually. But you know what we also have to be aware of? We need to be aware of false prophets, especially those who wear political garbs. I'm, I'm going to give you a long quote on my last point. I won't do it now. But you need to understand, church, that there are plenty of false prophets out there. They're not just the ones that stand behind pulpits. There's plenty of them that are out there, and they're communicating false things. They're saying things. They're giving you dreams that God never gave. They're, they're, they're making promises that God never sent them to make. And so the third thing, right, is to be fruitful, I mean to be faithful. Look at verses 10 through 14. I love these verses here. Some of y'all are like, we shouldn't even read these verses. We definitely need to read these verses. Look what it says. It says, for thus says the Lord, this is God comforting them, showing them something. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now let's pause for a moment. Verse 10, let me, let, let me, let me help you to understand this as we unpack this verse. Verse 10. 
10 is the context of the promises we're about to read. Are you here? Amen? Okay, check this out. Why is this important? Because I want you to know that God in the immediate context was not speaking to you or me. Hallelujah. Listen, this is important when we're looking at God's promises, right? Because all y'all know chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you. Come on now. They've made songs about this stuff right here, right? <laughs> and here's what I want you to know. I believe indirectly those promises apply to us, but not directly. I believe that when you look at who God, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question before we jump into verse 11. How many of you believe that God's plans for you are evil? Can you give me a New Testament context where for God's people, his plans for them are evil? Give it to me. There's no context in the New Testament for that. It doesn't mean I can go to Jeremiah 29, 11 and say, God said, no, 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 wait a second, time out. We need to be really clear what the context is. So let's move on here because I only got a little bit of time. But here's what it is. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. God wants us to walk in peace, does he not? That's why, I mean, the New Testament tells us to be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication to, and, and thanksgiving to make our requests known to God that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. I think God wants us to have peace. New Testament theology here, amen? And so we understand that. Nonetheless, he goes on to communicate to them. He's letting them know, my plans are not evil for you. I don't want to destroy you. He wants to give them a future and a hope. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you have a future and a hope? Did you do communion with us this morning? You know what communion is all about? Future and a hope. Is it not? Is that not what communion is about? All right, so we, you all understand where I'm going with this, right? He's giving them comfort in the midst of this dark time, the same comfort you and I should have. We just shouldn't jump back to this verse and be like, hey, I'm going to quote this because God was saying this to me. No, no, no. You don't have to say that. Look at the rest of your Bible. God said all that to you in the rest of the scriptures. Jesus died for your peace. Jesus died for your future. Jesus died to give you, what, what do we call it? We call it eternal security, a future and a hope, does he not? That's what he does, does he not? He shows us this future that is there for all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, all of those who have trusted him. And so he goes on to tell them what? He says this. He says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Is that, is that a true thing for us today? That when we call on him, he hears us? Is that not the confidence that we have? That if we, have, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. And, when we, and we know that if he hears us, we have the petitions we have desired of him. That's 1 John chapter 5, is it not? The scriptures show us that God, the same way that he wants to make sure that his people in the old covenant understand his promises, his purpose, so the people in the new covenant. You know why? Because if we don't understand this, we will not be faithful. He goes on to say in verse 13, he says, and you will seek me and find me, and when you search for me with all your heart, that's New Testament stuff there, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. Now here I want you to understand this, in the natural context, back from captivity, he is speaking directly to Israel. But do we not believe that God calls people out of darkness, out of bondage to sin, into the light of the gospel? Yes, he does. And so Israel has a promise from God. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has this same promise from him. Y'all thought I was going to talk about politics today, didn't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> 
He's going to bring them back from where he drove them. And so we see this here, be faithful. Here's what I want you to understand. True hope, trust in God's promised future, and lives with an eternal focus while seeking to be a temporal blessing. Let me say that again. True hope, trust in God's promised future, and lives with an eternal focus while seeking to be a temporal blessing. Here's the thing. We live for eternity, do we not? We live for the future that is coming. I, last night I had the great privilege of preaching at the 20-year anniversary, and the, there, there was a song that they sang in there about God being on the throne. And it just resonated so deep in my heart because you know what separates us from everyone else? Who sits on the throne? We live for the one who sits on the throne. We don't live for the applause of men. We don't live for people's accolades. We don't live for the things of this earth. We live for the king who's on a throne and for the kingdom that is coming. See, Israel's promise, and I want to make this crystal clear just in case you're confused. Israel's promised future isn't the same promise for us. Theirs was a temporal promise. Ours is eternal. It's not about a land. Right? It's not about a place. It's about a place of eternity. The third thing, and I'm getting ready to wrap up here. Say this with me. Say, engage politics, engage politics. with a biblical worldview. Engage politics with a biblical worldview. What my point was actually going to be here was, you should be a one-issue voter. Hello. I got half the room to laugh, and I know why. <laughs> so I've had conversations where people sound really moral, really intelligent, and they condemn certain Christians for being one-issue voters. Let me help you to understand something. You and I should be one-issue voters. There should be one issue that we are concerned about, and that's the vision of this church, to please God in everything we do. That, my friends, is the issue that we should be voting for or voting from. That is the issue that we should be doing everything from. It should be a thing that says, man, I want to please God. I want, and here, and listen, that sounds real easy, right? Because it, it just flows off the tongue so easy. Hey, I want to please the Lord, uh-huh. It's kind of like in marriage, right? Like, oh, I want to please my husband. Sure you do. Until he asks you to do something that is not pleasing to you. Hello, somebody. Oh, I want to please my wife. I love her so much. Yeah, you do. <laughs> while she's cooking for you, while she's doing that for you, while she's massaging you, while she's telling how much she loves you. But when she asks you, to do, to do, to do. You know that honey-do list. Come on now. I don't know if I want to please her so much. And it becomes the same thing in our walk with God when it comes to social issues. Do we really want to please God? Because here's what happens when I talk about you being a one-issue voter. It is about you really doing some research. It's about you really being prayerful. It's about you really sitting down and seeking God's heart. It's not as easy as you think. This is what it means. It means to say this, is this best for the culture? Remember, we're supposed to be people of peace. And so when we think about what we're voting for, what we're standing for, what we're arguing for, is this best for the culture? Is it best for the culture? From God's perspective, not mine. See, that's the difference. It's not my perspective. It's not what I think. It's not how I was raised. No, it's about from God's perspective, is this best for the culture? How about this one? Would God bring judgment for us for that type of behavior? Would he be happy with us to say, that's good, we agree with that, we support that, or would he condemn us for that? Would we bring his judgment upon us for that? And I'm going to be real vague today. Next week, y'all come back if you want. I'm going to be real direct next week about these things. I just want to be real generalized for you today. But here's the thing. Will this be best for the culture 
right? God, God, will God bring judgment on us for these things that we think about? Listen, some of these issues are really difficult, right? One of the questions that I had in our service survey, right? It was one of the other questions. And somebody just put a question, marijuana. They had a question about marijuana. Hello. And I was like, okay. And so they want to know about marijuana. I'm assuming they want to know, is it okay? Is it not okay? Or whatever the case is. Some houses are divided on this, right? Some houses are firmly divided on this topic. The question that I have for you is when you do research, when you sit down and you do research, is there a place in you that says, you know what, this might be okay on this front? Maybe you say yes to that. But have you prayed it through? Have you studied it out? And have you said that's the best thing? I'm just giving you one example here. I won't get deep into that next week. The next one here is, does God's word speak about this? What we're talking about, whatever the topic is, does God's word say something about it? Because if God's word says something about it, can I tell you something really, really just brash and harsh? Shut up. If God's word says something about it, you have nothing to say. I'm not God. In my marriage, I'm never going to tell my wife to shut up. Hello, somebody. You may never see me again. Glory to God. <laughs> I'm just saying I could lose my life for something crazy like that, right? <laughs> But we are talking about the sovereign God and ruler who has spoken. You and I are puny men and women. We have no right to try to reinvent, reinterpret, or try to argue with what God has said. If God's word says something, be quiet. Simply say, this is what God's word says, that's it. You don't have to give an explanation. I told y'all the, the story, right, about the, about the, the gentleman who was given his story about um, his conversion his, when, he, when he was converted to come to Christ. He was a former practicing homosexual. He said he saw some young men that were sitting at a table with a Bible open. And as they were sitting at a table with their Bibles open, he said he had never seen a Bible before where he was at. And so he walked over there to the table and he started having a conversation with them. And then he said, I asked a million dollar question. I said, so what do you guys think about homosexuality? You know what these young men said very boldly, very clearly. They said, we believe it is a sin. However, we want to invite you to our church. They didn't make more of it than what it was, and they didn't make less of it than what it was. It is sin. Jesus died for it. We got to call it what it is, do we not? That's what the scriptures teach us. And so if God spoke about it, then here's how we are supposed to live for the glory of God. I want to quote somebody. I can't remember who it is right now. I think it's Chuck Colson maybe. But he said this, and I think that this is so good. This is a long quote, so I'm going to need you to really, get, really engage. Don't get distracted, but here, here it is. Christians, he's writing a response to a book that was written about, you know, politics and stuff like that. And he says this, he says, Christians involved in politics must maintain their independence. Without that, we play into the hands of those Republicans and Democrats who would use us. Let me say that again. Christians involved in politics must maintain their independence. Without that, we play into the hands of those Republicans and Democrats who would use us. Both parties are doing and saying things to attract so-called value voters. And then he goes on in his comment about this writer, and he says he is wrong to suggest, because the suggestion was, that Christians ought to enter into a time of fasting from politics. Christians need, this is his, his response, need to influence politics for justice and righteousness. And I would argue the two are one and the same. 
But we must do so with eyes open, aware of the snares. Today, Christians may find themselves, now listen to this, suspect. I have experienced this myself. To the very people on whose side they are fighting. But that is the price they must pay to preserve their independence and not be beholden to any political ideological alignment. Only by continuing to fight for our beliefs, regardless of the temptation, compromises, or being called nuts, can we achieve the kind of moral reform and protection of human rights that Christians throughout the centuries and in every culture work for. Church, we have to maintain our independence. We are followers of Christ before anything else. And so we engage with a biblical worldview. I close with this. Our political engagement should always be about adding value to the culture. Wherever we engage politically, it should be about adding value to the culture. When we embrace policies that don't align with biblical values, not wanting to impose our values upon the culture, what we do is devalue the culture. And you know what that is? That's worthless salt. When we choose to just step back and just disengage completely. And listen, I told you all the 11.11% that didn't vote, I said they got the moral high ground on this. I ain't mad at them. I'm not upset with them because I understood they just couldn't, whatever their reason was. They couldn't bring themselves to make a vote in that last election. All good, right? But they're not just disengaging from the process because church, hear me when I say this, we are supposed to be the salt in our culture. We are supposed to bring value to our culture. And can I tell you something? Here's the, here's the terrible part of all of this, is that you can't go red, you can't go blue, and be like, that's the right way 100%. You can't do it. You're lying to yourself if you do. You're deceiving yourself if you believe that. So you know what we need to do? We need to start a purple party. Hello. <laughs> Y'all want to put some money behind that? Glory to God. <laughs> I'm not going to run. I'm going to keep preaching, but we'll find some people that want to run and want to do something. But here's the thing, it would be so beautiful. And I think next week, because I am going to touch on immigration because that was a big question that came up. I think when you look at the biblical worldview from, now listen to me now, from the evangelicals in our culture regarding immigration, how they lobbied Congress long time ago, way before Trump became president, how they did all of that. They put things in place and say, hey, this is what we believe will be the best reform to our immigration policies. I think you're going to be shocked. I think you're going to be shocked at how much they spoke up. And you know what? The problem is those people in the White House, they don't listen. They don't listen. That's why the church has to be united on those issues that really matter. And so here's my closing question for you, and I'm sorry I went way over, but here's my question. Are you willing to confront your political idols? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to confront your political idols and be honest about them? I'm willing to do that. Let's all stand on our feet, let's bow our heads before the Lord. Father, we come to you with humble hearts. Lord, I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would look deep within our hearts. I pray that you would show us what is righteousness by your standards, what is holiness by your standards, what is justice by your standards. I pray above everything, Lord, that you would help us to be mature believers that say like David did, 
Search our hearts. Search our hearts. Show us unrighteousness in us. Help us not to bow to idols, but to bow to you alone. Give us wisdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. He's worthy. You can be seated for a moment.